Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionchurchseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. So, uh, good morning and welcome to Redemption. Uh, my name is Alex. It's good to see all of you this morning. One of the pastors here. Katie, thank you for that incredible story of grace. That was so so good. And uh, as we just heard Katie read, uh, today's sermon is going to be centering in on a bit on anxiety. Uh, so yeah, here we go. Uh, and I do love that Katie mentioned going to therapy, taking medication. Uh, just so you know, the scriptures are not against going to see a counselor, even the Holy Spirit takes up the name Counselor, capital C. There's nothing wrong with going to a therapist. There's nothing wrong with taking medication. It's just like going to the dentist or going to a chiropractor. There is nothing wrong about those things. So if, there, if anybody at any point along the way has tried to use the Bible to say, if you just had more faith, your anxiety would go away or whatever, that's just wrong. It's like saying, if you had more faith, there wouldn't be a cavity that needs filling or whatever. That's just not the case. And part of God's incredible grace in this world is to give us therapists and counselors, medication and things like that that help us along the way. And there's coming a day, according to the gospel, where we will take off the mortal flesh and be clothed in immortality and our bodies will be made whole in every way. So in between the here and then, as Christians, we build one another up, we pray for one another, and we encourage one another along in this thing called life. So um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip it open to Philippians chapter 4. So t- and today is a, uh, is a standalone sermon. So if you don't know what that is, we just finished the book of Ruth last week. We're jumping into the Psalms next week. And so today we're going to do a standalone. Traditionally, what we like to do is we take a book of the Bible. We walk word by word, line by line through a particular book. Uh, but today we're going to just zoom in on this one particular passage in Philippians 4, and it really is the summation of what the Christian life. It hits at the big idea of joy, which could sum up the entire theme of the Christian life. So let me pray for us, and then we'll just jump right into the passage for today. Father, we ask that you would illuminate the Holy Spirit, or illuminate the scriptures through the Holy Spirit, point us to Jesus, help us to see and savor you, Father, over everything. God, if you don't stir our hearts and our minds, we will read the literal words of God and still walk away unmoved and unchanged, unaffected. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work now powerfully. God, would you help me to think clearly and to not be anxious even in preaching now? Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you that we get to do this. We pray these things, Jesus, in your good name. Amen. Okay, so we're jumping in to Philippians chapter 4, and we're doing verses 4 to 8 today. And uh, before you just jump into the passage, what I want to do is just do a quick 30,000-foot overview, flyover of the book of Philippians, so as to give you a little bit of context. That is, if you open the Bible without knowing about the author, the recipients, the date, the occasion, the reason for writing, some of the themes, if you don't know that and you just read a passage just out of, just pluck a passage out without reading in light of the larger context, you'll miss 
some important things. So I'm going to do a, a quick flyover of the book of Philippians and tell you a little bit of those backgrounds. First, uh, Paul, Paul himself, the apostle, who wrote uh, about 13 of, or 14 of the letters of the New Testament, Paul writes this particular letter. Paul was a zealous Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He actually gives his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. You can read it later this week if you want. But he sums up who he is, what he had accomplished up to date. That is, he was a zealous, zealous, zealous Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, meaning he would have had the Old Testament likely memorized. He was so zealous and so passionate about God and God's truth that he was willing to put people to death for being wrong, i.e. Christians. Paul was known for taking them, putting them in prison, and even putting many to death because of people's now confession that Jesus is Yahweh's son. Therefore, Paul, in his great Jewish zeal, was persecuting the church. He had a dramatic conversion. You can read about it in Acts chapter 8, where he is on the road, right, to Damascus. He's on his way to imprison more Christians. Jesus, who had been crucified, resurrected, and ascended back into heaven, suddenly comes out of heaven, knocks Paul off his horse, blinding him for three days, and starts questioning him immediately. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? They begin to have a conversation. Saul is blinded and then recovers his sight three days later. Jesus then, after a period of time, commissions him to be what's called an apostle. That apostle, a capital A apostle, is someone who has seen the resurrected Lord Jesus, right? And then been commissioned by Jesus to go and preach with authority in Jesus' name and to plant churches and to make disciples. Paul is an apostle. So, with this apostolic mission that Paul now has, he takes, when you read the book of Acts, and if you flip to the back of your Bible, you'll likely see a map, right? These, these things, they're, they're actually great. These parts are just fantastic. But anyway, you can read about Paul's missionary journeys. So, when you get out of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you get an Acts, and that gives you all of your New Testament history. So, as you read Acts, you'll then see Paul journeying into certain cities and writing letters to certain churches. The reason why he's writing letters to certain churches is because after he plants a church, somebody, they become Christians, they start following Jesus, they start, right? And then a problem arises. In Corinth, everybody's getting drunk. In Galatia, everybody became super legalistic. In Thessalonica, everybody thought Jesus had already returned and everybody's left behind and living underground with a power generator. It was very weird, all right? So every time an occasion happens, one of the apostles has to address that particular problem, okay? In Philippi, where Paul is writing this particular letter, um, Paul is addressing uh, the fact that the church is now coming under major persecution and they might actually lose their heads. Now, on Paul's missionary journeys, he takes three of them. On his second missionary journey, he visits the church of Philippi. Philippi is an interesting city. If you read about it in Acts chapter 16, you'll see a lot of things go on. One, that's where we find the lady Lydia. Right? When you hear about her, the woman who died purple, she's, that's where she was, where she converted to follow Christ. It's in uh, Philippi, where Paul was imprisoned on one occasion. Then Paul gets out of jail and then goes and continues to preach go the gospel around the Roman Empire. By the way, there's the Roman Empire. Let me tell you real quick. Tarsus, right here in the uh, northeast corner, that's where Paul's from. Philippi is over here in the northwest, right over here under, uh, in the region of Macedonia. So Paul's doing all this, traveling 
basically the entire known world, because Jesus said, go into the world, so Paul took him literally, went into the world. Like that, by foot, preaching Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Hence, Paul ends up in jail, writing a letter from Rome to Philippi to encourage the church. So, the conditions that Paul's writing in are terrible. I've read a bunch on Roman prison systems this week. If you want to really be bummed out, that'll do it. Um, In the first century, pretty terrible. No sunlight. Uh, They were overcrowded. Chains were usually upwards of 15 pounds, would oftentimes rust and then cause bodies to rot and decay. Uh, Hygiene was obviously awful. Um, Most Romans preferred death over going to prison. When someone dies in prison, they just put them in the corner until someone comes and cleans out all the bodies. It was an awful, 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 awful thing to wind up in jail. Uh, people, uh, those who would be imprisoned would depend on family or friends to bring food. I.e., you see Paul saying, can somebody please bring me a coat? He, you, you're, you're desperate. Uh, the, the food that you would get in prison, you'd get a slave's portion and then cut that in half. Many just died or would prefer death over, over, over going to jail. So Paul is in this kind of jail in Rome, writing back to the Philippians. And you go, why is Paul in jail real quick? Because he won't shut up about Jesus. They keep telling him, stop saying Jesus is Lord, Caesar's Lord. And Paul says, no, we're going to bump Caesar down a peg. Jesus resurrected from the dead. Jesus is Lord. Like, well, if you just tweak your gospel message enough, you'll go free. He says, no, no, I won't do that. I'm not willing to do that. So there's some of the some of the context. Now, let me, let me tell you, I'm just going to read a few key passages through uh, Philippians 1, 2, and 3 to get to chapter 4. We're going to be here all day. Uh, I'm sorry, but not that sorry, but we'll, we'll be okay. All right, so first, chapter 1, verse 2, look what it says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm going to read to you in chapter 4 is a bunch of commandments. But if I read to you the, the, the commandments without giving you the grace that... that, that empowers the commandments, you'll get another religion. Does that make sense? All the imperatives of the gospel are are, are to be derived out of the the indicatives. That is, God has done X, the indicative, therefore the imperative is to do this, okay? So we ground our Christian life in the grace of God, and the fruit of our Christian life comes out of the grace that we've received, okay? So that's what we're doing. So look, I'll just show you the, the grace of God in Philippians. First, first thing he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's grace? That's, that's God's unmerited and ill-merited favor on your life. The first thing he reminds the Philippians of as they're scared of facing persecution is this, grace, grace be to you. Grace to you through God our Father and the Lord Jesus. That is, God loves you as you are. You've been reconciled to him by grace. Okay? Then we jump down to verse uh, 5. Look what it says, or 6. He says, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning this, that if you're a Christian and God started something in you, don't, 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 just because you're struggling, don't think for a moment that God's given up on you. He will finish the good work. If you met Jesus like I did about 22 years ago, and I struggled all week up and down with some anxiety. 
starting Sunday, last Sunday after church, and then it showed up again on Friday afternoon, and then it hit again on Saturday, and I didn't sleep a wink until about five o'clock this morning. Like, you struggle with anxiety, you struggle with that stuff. Don't think for a moment that God is not going to complete the good work that he begins in you. He is. He is. Next verse. Uh, down in 11, he says that you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. So your righteousness before the throne of God, where do you get that righteousness? Through Jesus, to the glory and the praise of God. Then look at verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that mean? He said, well, because I've been reconciled to God by grace and through faith, Jesus has now become my obsession. Jesus is not a weekend hobby. Jesus is not just a moral tweaking on my life, something that I think I should do because it seems like the right thing to do to get a few more ethics and morals or, you know, tick the box. What is it? He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live, to wake up is Jesus. For me to go about my day is Jesus. For me to eat whatever you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Whatever I'm doing, when I go to work, it's for Jesus. When I'm with my friends, it's with Jesus. When my neighbors, my coworkers, my family, it's Jesus. To live, to wake up, it is Jesus. Jesus has done something to me. Jesus has now become an obsession. It's awesome. For me to live is Jesus and to die is gain. Paul, we're going to kill you if you don't stop talking about Jesus. like, great. I've already resigned. My whole life's purpose was to get to Jesus anyway. If you send me early, well, that's on you, but uh, I'm, I'm good with that. Wow. This is the kind of Jesus that can ultimately make us bold in the face of death. And then, and then over in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, he starts telling the, uh, the Ephesians how to, how to think and how to be humble toward one another and loving toward one another. And so he, what does he do? He quotes a hymn. If you mark your Bible, write that in the, in the margin there. That's a hymn. This, this two, five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So how are you going to be humble? Look what he says. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, became nothing, became a servant. Emptied himself, meaning kenosis, meaning he, he, he applied, he wrapped humanity, human flesh around the second person of the Trinity. So when you think, well, how did Jesus empty himself? Did he stop being God when he came to the earth? How does that work? No, no, he's still God, equal with God, but didn't hang on to that, didn't count that as something to hang on to. Rather, he, as God, comes to the earth and then humbles himself and wraps himself in flesh. Think about that. God didn't send an angel to die for you. God sent his only son. So he, he, he didn't count that as something to be grasped, made himself nothing. God made himself nothing taken on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. You want to know the gospel? Jesus died for you on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Why? Because of the resurrection. God's highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth, under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow, that's a lot of theology for a hymn. And that's what Paul's quoting to the church. You guys sing this, and he reminds them, here's how we're humble toward one another, okay? So you can see how he's using the gospel the indicative to now show us the imperative, how to be humble toward one another. And then he continues on. Look at this. He says in uh, 3 verse 12, look at this. He, this is so good. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. I love that Paul acknowledges right there. I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. I've not arrived yet. Anybody feel like that as a Christian? 
I'm not there. I don't have it all together. I'm not perfect. I'm trying, but gosh, I'm struggling. Yeah, I'm not perfect. And then the whole gospel, you can just, it's so, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Jesus has made me his own. If you want to know what the gospel is, it's that. Jesus, Jesus has made me his own. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, the old British theologian, one time was asked, what's the gospel? Can you sum it up in three words? He goes, yeah, easy. It's like, how do you sum up the New Testament and the Old Testament? It's easy. God saves sinners. That's it. There it is. Made me his own. Keep going. Then he says, um, now, yeah, we'll stop there. All right. So we'll get into the passage now. There. So now we'll preach the sermon. All right. So, so with all this gospel, here it is, the indicative, here's the imperatives. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Okay. So the commandment is a command. Now he's going to command you. If he was to open the book with rejoice in the Lord, we'd all go, why? What'd he do? Who? Who should I rejoice in exactly? He says rejoice in the Lord. As a result of all of this grace, we're going to rejoice in the Lord. Part of what we exist for as a church body is what? The first thing is enjoying Jesus. Therefore, we enjoy him. We rejoice in the Lord. We take our confidence in the Lord. We find our identity in the Lord. We find our boasting in what Jesus has done. We rejoice in the Lord. There's some goofy theology that many of us are tempted to buy into at various points in our lives. I know I bought into it early on, and it's this, that the more I appeared mopey in the Lord, grumpy in the Lord, legalistic in the Lord, nitpicky in the name of the Lord, the more I was downcast in the Lord, I thought that was kind of, you're supposed to be grumpy if you follow the Lord and be very stiff and, you know, uptight. That couldn't be further from the gospel. That's the, that's the stuff that Jesus went after the Pharisees for. Stop, stop making this thing look so horrible. <laughs> you, you fast and you dishevel your faces and you make it look like walking with God is a burden. What is wrong with you? Don't you know the character of God? Don't you know he loves you? So rejoice in the Lord. It's like, well, how do you rejoice in the Lord? How do you do that? You take Jesus up and take his word literally over in John 15 and abide in him. That is, you don't check in and check out of a religious faith with him. That is, roll into church, say hi to the Lord on Sunday, and then I'll see you next week. I'm going to go about my life Monday to Saturday. That's not Christianity. That's just not Christianity. Christianity is, I abide in you, you abide in me. I make my home in you, you make your home in me. We're in a 24-7 relationship that God is going with me when I say amen and the benediction and we walk out of the doors of this church today. God's going with us all week long. How do you, how do you stay in that place of rejoicing in the Lord? By staying conscious and connected to your Savior. How do you rejoice in the Lord? That's how. You take him literally at his word and stick with him and abide in him. So you rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice. So you're going to rejoice in what Jesus has done for you. And to do it always. Not only when things go our way, 
I mean, if you wait on life to get just right before you'll rejoice in the Lord, before you'll enjoy Jesus, before you get on with walking with Him, if you wait on life to just get just right where you make that amount of money, that relationship happens, this thing comes through, when, when life looks exactly the way I want it to, then I will. If you're waiting on that, it'll never happen. It just won't. And that's not to be gloomy or like, that's just reality is life doesn't always shape out the way we hoped or wanted it to. So we rejoice in the Lord over our circumstances. Because our Lord is in the circumstances. So next verse, rejoice in the Lord again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Oh my gosh, do I struggle with that one. Be reasonable. Does anybody ever has Alex, can you be reasonable for a moment? I've heard that one at least once in my 38 years. Um, let your reasonableness be known to who? <laughs> everyone. Let your reasonableness. This is actually, uh, it's better, the better translation is in the NIV where it says, let your, let your gentle forbearance be known to everyone. Gentleness. Gentleness, gentleness, gentleness. Talk about something that isn't seen as a virtue, but more of a, a vice. Might be gentleness these days. That is, gentleness, people that are gentle, they get cut off in traffic. They don't get ahead. People that are gentle, meek, that whole thing. I mean, how many men really want to hear that one? Be gentle. Gentle. And yet, this was a man's man saying this. This is Paul. If you read Corinthians, read about all that he had suffered. All his teeth are knocked out. Eyes are black. Locked up in jail. Sick as a dog. Going without food. Just barely a shell of a, a life. Voluntarily. Because he's convinced of the truth of the gospel. It says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I'm going through this because I know God has a people in this world and he's going to save them. I'm willing to do this. This is Paul, man's man. And every time he gets out of jail, what does he do? He starts making tents and sells those in order to fund his own ministry to continue to afford the opportunity to go get beat up again for Jesus. This is an unbelievable man's man. On one occasion, they stone him to death. They think he's dead. He's under a pile of rocks. Crawls out from under the rocks the next day. And what's he do? Goes right back into the city and preaches Jesus again. This dude is as tough as nails. And what does he say to people who are scared, who are thinking, gosh, this person's going to come against me if I stand for Jesus? He says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Your gentleness. You know what an unbelievable apologetic for the gospel is? is gentleness. I mean, it's great if you know all your apologetics and you can argue why you believe in the existence of God and the Trinity and all that stuff. It's, that stuff's great, but if you lack gentleness, nobody cares. Nobody cares. At least that's in my experience. Because you can still win an argument and lose a person. Gentleness is unbelievable. And by the way, Above everything, I've become convinced of this personally in my own experience of Jesus. 
is that above everything, Jesus is gentle. Here's what I mean. I know the Bible says he is Lord and King in Christ, and that's true. And every knee will bow and tongue confess. I've just read that Jesus is Lord. However, listen, listen. If you ask anyone who spends real time with Jesus, I mean real time, where they get their soul still enough to listen to the voice of God, you know how they talk about him? They always talk about him in terms of his gentleness, his kindness, his compassion, and his patience. Almost never when I ask a Christian about their walk with Christ do I hear, well, Jesus is Lord. No, they start talking in more relational terms like, he's been gentle with me. He's been patient with me. He's been kind to me. He's been good to me. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Okay, how am I going to let my gentleness be known? By staying mindful of the fact that Christ is returning. So for all the eschatology and all the maps and the charts and the stuff in the back of your Bible that talks about like when Christ is returning and how it's all going to go, here's, here's, here's the practical application of your eschatology. Be gentle, Christ is at hand. That is, as Christians, we believe the entire creed. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, crucified under Pontius Pilate, resurrected, ascended, and is returning to judge the living and the dead. Therefore, we're going to be gentle. Therefore, we're going to be gentle. Jesus is at hand. You guys still with me? Yeah? Okay. Right on. All right. I'm just going to keep going. Um, all right. A couple more verses. Here we go. Uh, the Lord is at hand. Therefore, because Jesus is at hand, because he's at hand, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Therefore, do not be anxious. That is, don't have undue worry or concern. Like what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink, and what you put on. God clothes the flowers, the field with all the flowers. Remember that? He cares for all the birds of the air. He knows how many hairs are on your head. Not one sparrow falls to the ground without his will. All these things. Therefore, don't be anxious. Don't have undue worry. God is going to meet your needs. That's what he's saying. This is not Paul saying, uh, if you suffer from a severe mental illness, put on a smiley face and act like it's okay. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, to resign and abandon your life in such a way as to go, God is the one that's going to meet my needs and I don't have to worry to death. Don't be anxious. So what am I supposed to do with my anxiety if I'm not supposed to be anxious? Well, he gives you the answer. Pray. Pray. Do you know how to pray? I mean, I grew up in church, and I heard all, a lot of, I was told to pray, but I don't really remember learning many lessons on how to pray. I was told to read my Bible. I don't know if I heard a whole lot about how to read the Bible. Do you know how to pray? But in everything, pray. Meaning this, still your heart for a moment of silence. Go sit in your truck, go sit in your car, and pray. 
Get together with someone else and pray. Did you know your prayers don't have to be the long these and thou arts, King James, like, and do the whole Lord's Prayer? Do you know there's a thing called breath prayers where you can just say, help, and that, that's good? So in everything, in everything, do you know that everything that concerns you concerns your Father in heaven? If he's willing to hang on a cross for you, then there's no small detail of your life that he looks at and goes, well, that's not really all that significant. He hung on a cross for you. Meaning the thing that's keeping you up, the thing that's frustrating you, the thing that broke your heart, that thing concerns your father. So in everything, through prayer and supplication, meaning get together and pray with others and pray for others, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. You got to mark that word thanksgiving, like gratitude. Like gratitude. I read one, one the, uh, theologian said it this way, that he, that Essentially, Christianity and gratitude are nearly synonymous in the mind of Paul. I.e., there's no such thing as an ungrateful Christian, or it should not be. That gratitude is at the very center of what it is to be Christian. After all this grace he's had on us, therefore gratitude. So every time you pray, Go ahead and start thanking God in advance for how he's going to answer your prayer, even if it shapes out differently than what you asked for. Go ahead and thank him because he knows what's good for you. That's what Paul's getting at. So when you pray, express gratitude. And I'm telling you, that can be the hardest thing. It can be a very hard thing. When you're praying, God, will you remove this thorn from my flesh? God, will you make this thing go away? And still in the middle of that, to just go ahead and center the prayer with, but thank you. I don't want this. But thank you for being present with me in this. So in everything, pray. I'm going to do this last verse. Let your request be made known to God. By the way, that's, like, that's not an argument saying God doesn't know what's going on in your life. It's rather giving you the opportunity to now voice those and come into a real living relationship with him rather than just default to like fatalism. All right, so note that one. All right, and, and, okay, so here's what's gonna happen. The command is rejoice in the Lord. Here's the promise. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the peace of God. This is called a, for, here's a 50-cent word since you're in church today. Uh, it's called uh, the hapax legomenon. What's that? That means it's, it's the one time this is used in the New Testament, right? The one time. The peace of God. The peace of God. We hear about the peace of Christ over in Col- Colossians, I think it is. But the peace of God will guard your heart. The peace of God. Rejoice in him. Let your quest be known to him. And God's peace, God's peace will guard you, and Paul knows a thing or two about being guarded. He's chained to guards. The peace of God will guard your heart and your mind, meaning both your emotions and your will, as well as your, your, your volition, your, your mind, your cognitive faculty itself. The peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard you. If you take your prayers to him, take your worries to him, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, right? Do this, and God's peace will guard your hearts and minds 
in Christ Jesus. And by the way, it surpasses all understanding. Perhaps you've experienced that as a Christian, where life is literally burning down. And you're not rejoicing really in the circumstance. You find yourself rejoicing in the Lord and you go, I'm going to, for some reason I'm at peace. I can't totally explain it, but I'm at peace. I can't get my head around this. I don't know why I'm at peace. So-and-so just died. This just happened. They just walked out. The money did not come through. The doctor just told me this. Whatever the thing is. Life is on fire. And yet I'm at peace in this. I can't explain it. Your non-Christian friends might even notice that and go, your life sucks. Why are you okay? It's even beyond my understanding, but I do believe these things, that God is good, that God is in control, and he's with me in this. Sometimes, that's the strongest argument for the gospel. It's just the peaceful life that you live. He'll guard your heart and your mind in Christ. Ah, if we had time, we'd go into that part. Finally, brothers. Like, okay, here we go. So, so because of all this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence Anything worthy of praise? Think about these things. Okay. Think about these things. So you might be wondering, so is the Bible telling me how to think? Yes. Is it telling me what to think? Yes. Like, I don't like to be told how to think or what to think. Well, this is what we sign up for when we sign up for Jesus as Lord we surrender and say, all right, Lord, you know best. You tell me what to think and how to think, it's, even when it's not natural to me at all. So in like uh, 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says it this way, right? Where he says, um, take every thought captive, make it obedient, right? Remember this part? Take your thoughts captive, make them obedient to Jesus, that, that's so important that the Christian life is won and lost. It's a battle completely of your mind. Have you noticed that? That's why Romans 12 is so important to, be, to, to no longer be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to keep submerging yourself in Scripture, keep submerging yourself in community, keep submerging yourself in prayer. God, you got to work on my mind. I keep seeing things in culture every day, and I keep wanting to go this way, but you've told me to go over here. So he says, take every thought captive, make it, make it obedient to Christ. He took a, 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 an image right out of the military. Like, literally, if there was an intruder on the emperor's ground, he took that, took that metaphor there, where, where a soldier would find an intruder, you go up to the intruder, you shove the spear up under his chin, and you would turn him and force him to walk backwards all the way to the emperor's throne and say, I found this guy trespassing, what would you have us do with him? And either the individual ends up in jail or he loses his head right there because the emperor is Lord. Paul takes that metaphor and says, so take all your thoughts captive. Those websites, those desires, those things that race through your mind, those scenarios, take those captive. You take responsibility. 
take that to Christ and say, Jesus, how do you feel about this? What would you have me think about? So he says, so here's, here's, a, here's a, a bunch of things. He says, so, so whatever's true, honorable, just, pure. If you want to know how, where do you find what's true, just take out the word whatever right there and insert Jesus. Think on these things. Jesus is true. Jesus is honorable. Jesus is just. Jesus is pure. Jesus is lovely. Jesus is commendable. Jesus is excellent. Jesus is worthy of praise. Think on these things. If you're trying to find a context, how do I know what's true, right, good, just, lovely, all these things? Think about who Christ is and then think about those things in context, in relation to him. And the thoughts start coming. And there's a lot to be grateful for. 